is the TMI Project Podcast. I'm Micah. And I'm Eva Tenuto. How you doing, Micah? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I'm happy to be here. Me too. Because today, we are recording from the metaphorical hinterlands, that curious netherworld, the eerie, uncharted region between season one and season two. That's because we're still working on our second season. But in the meantime, we have some stories that we need to share. So we're going to, even though it's not like a part of the plan, but that's right, because we're random like that. Before we start though, do you want to talk about the subject of season two? I do. Uh, It's Black Stories Matter, a program that is extra special to me. And tell our listeners why. Well, partially because it's how I uh, first started with TMI Project. I was a participant in 2017 as part of the first cast for Black Stories Matter. But then I, I joined more deeply and became a facilitator. But also because we as black people have always had stories to tell. Coming together in community to share them is deeply healing, I think, for all of us. And white America, by choice and by ignorance, has been denied our stories and is maybe, just maybe, now beginning to recognize how unhealthy that dynamic has been. Being a part of Black Stories Matter, of supporting the development of our stories and our truths, there's there's really nothing more important to me. Season two, Black Stories Matter, will be launching this fall. But today, we're bringing you alone together, our very first virtual show. In April, we put out a call for stories of hope and resilience during COVID-19, just to see what would happen. We curated an evening of six stories, edited, rehearsed, and then performed them, just like we always do, but on Zoom. What's crazy is that every single audience member was also living their own pandemic story at the same time that they were watching. A worldwide collective experience and a moment of togetherness when we're all living apart. Because this performance happened on Zoom and not in a theater, it may sound a little strange. We had to mute the audience so there's no laughter or applause. Each storyteller read from home and had a different connection and so the sound quality does vary. But we were able to connect and capture what it sounds like to share stories alone together. We hope you enjoy. Our first storyteller is Amanda Reed from Washington, DC. I live alone in a one bedroom apartment in Northwest DC. Despite starting my career in the journalism field, I strayed from writing when I moved to Washington to pursue operations roles at tech companies. While the call to write has never left me, I certainly left it. I moved into this apartment last December, but hadn't any clue the window to meet other tenants and neighbors would, just weeks later, slam shut. No time for hallway hellos or casual chats by mailboxes. With my entire family anchored in Massachusetts, it's just me here, alone in this apartment, not a human in sight. But my city dwelling is situated so close to Smithsonian National Zoological Park, I can hear African lions roar. Luke, Naba, Shira, and Amale account for my quarantine company. The sound of a lion's roar is low and enormous and disarming. It booms and arcs, sending vibrations for miles. There's nothing like it. 
Even the familiar on-screen yop of the MGM cat, keeper of the cinephile kingdom, pales in comparison. To say I didn't fully appreciate this primal backyard symphony before the onset of coronavirus would be wholly inaccurate. It served as more of an exotic fun fact, an antidote to banal small talk and a special morsel I had in common with my literary heroine, Nora Ephron. She wrote about the lions too when she lived in Northwest DC while married to famed journalist Carl Bernstein. Efron wrote, I would stare out the window of my Washington apartment, which had a commanding view of the lions at the National Zoo. The lions at the National Zoo, oh, the metaphors of captivity that leaped to mind. I don't aim to draw the captivity parallel, however, a little too on the snout. I'm simply here to pay homage to my maimed neighbors for their daily concerts. Prior to the mid-March stay-at-home order, I knew them to sound their calls before sunrise and sunset, when they're most active. I never once paused to ponder the Pride's lunch plans or midday musings. I wasn't at home during those stretches of the day. I couldn't hear their throaty tunes while I was out in the world. Then, on a morning in early April, those roars rolled in on the hour every hour. By day's end, I was as tamed as Pavlov's dog and waiting by the window, neck craned with anticipation. So far, I've refrained from roaring back, though the instinct and pent-up emotion is certainly there. Any attempt at call and response might seem too similar to the shrillness of the smoke detector. My human neighbors have heard this sound one too many times, I'm afraid. I actually set it off twice this morning. While I miss my family in New England terribly, I'm grateful for the pride that's unknowingly adopted me. I rely on them, my pack. I need them, and I thank them for reminding me that nature's pulse is as unwavering as it is magic. I tell them of my sense of helplessness, too. The unending thoughts of suffering masses I can't make well, and, and they know of the guilt how the illness and quarantine crippling so many has forced me in my own isolation to answer a long burning desire to write more, to reckon with this unattended dream that's been burrowing holes in my heart and my mind. Thanks to Smithsonian's always live lion cam, I'm learning to better train my ear. Living room and Google Chrome browser windows open and suddenly Luke, Naba, Shara, and Amale are on the prowl in front of my coffee table. These self-imposed lessons in zoology have duly reminded me of a theme I often return to when things get hard. To really know something is to be with it, to try and understand it, to tame it and, and be tamed by it. Who's roaring about what and why? Hungry? Frisky? A tad territorial? I now know such deep and distinct vo vocals are capable of busting up family squabbles and asserting strength, signaling warning and frustration, hunger and lust. We're all social, social beasts struggling to communicate something, it turns out. But when quarantine is over, I, I will be the only animal who gets to leave my cage. 
I write more now than I have in years, every day in fact. It's the wonderful pandemic silver lining surprise I don't feel I deserve, but cling to with both hands. Springtime amid this new reality is long and unnerving and eerily bright. What's ahead will be too. But tomorrow, as the mid-afternoon sun cuts through Rock Creek Park's winding tree line, the lions will roar with me. You just heard Amanda Reed. Our next reader is Jaquise Armstrong from New Jersey. COVID has formed shackles that will not let me roam freely. It takes me back to a time when I was 20 years old. My world got turned upside down and came to a halt. In my head, it is that small hollow space with a front room, bathroom, bath, and kitchenette. My first apartment. It is a warp in time, a twilight zone. I have no fond memories there. This is the place where I lost my world. This is the place where I lost my mind. It has never been any semblance of the same since. It's been a long raggedy mile. But here I stand in another apartment that feels like the first. Since I am a modest means, my current apartment is really a glorified dorm room. It consists of odds and ends, utilitarian stuff. I think I have more style in college. I'm the sole inhabitant and the world has been turned on its head again. In college, even though classes are in session, I sit with my knees to my chest, chain smoking cigarettes. Too frightened to leave and too fearful to stay. Horror follows me and I feel more secure at home with my back against the door. I'm a chemical engineering student at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. My grades, once mostly A's and B's, began slipping to C's and D's. Everything is out of control, but I won't admit it. I can't. I think it's my fault and I have to do better. So I don't complain. But something as mundane as walking the campus puts me in distress. I feel like the whole campus is laughing at me. Everyone else's minds are telling me that I shouldn't be there in my condition because my voices are interrupting them. Now, 38 years later, I'm not bound to my shelter like before. The shackles of psychosis, paranoia, and the confusion of delusion are not keeping me tearfully and emotionally drained in that hollow space. No, it threatens to work backwards this time. First, I'm traumatized by the remembrance of the start of the end of a certain light that once existed as me, and I have to mourn her again. Thankfully, I've been through enough therapy to know what's happening. But still, there are tears, and it's emotionally draining. I can't believe I've lived to see the lights go out on Broadway twice. The aloneness of COVID-19 doesn't distress me. I've always been an escapist. As a child, my main escape route was through books. I lived the character or injected myself into the story. I traveled with Babar and his Queen Celeste all over the world. I was a fugitive slave on the Underground Railroad with Harriet Tubman. I was Jane Eyre. What I find distressing is being in the same space and not having the freedom to come and go as I please. During the week before quarantine, I usually left my apartment early and didn't return until after dark. 
Weekends were mostly me time and I preferred it that way. But I love driving from activity to activity, stopping in the park to greet the trees every day and writing in my gratitude journal and watching the many people I saw along the way. But now that there's nowhere to go, I guess I have to fight. Now in my mind and in my poetry, I'm a warrior. Instead of giving in to trauma because I've dealt with her before, I built a fortress against her. Never thought I'd say that living all my adult life challenged by psychosis, depression, paranoia, anxiety, and the rest of her friends is an asset. But you can see where I'm going with this. So among other things, I create expressive arts workshops for mental wellness. I start using this time to amp up my game. I join every free artistic workshop I come across online and a few technical ones too. I've been answering every call for writing or poetry. I keep more than one art journal, a gratitude journal, do daily devotions, and am developing online alternatives for my workshops. So I try not to go back to that small, hollow space with a front room, bedroom, bath, and kitchenette, the warp in time, the twilight zone, the place where I found no fond memories, the place where I lost my world, the place where I lost my mind. Instead, I concentrate on creating from the hollow space the shackles of psychosis left me with. That was Jaquise Armstrong. Our next reader is Terry Wiegand from Brooklyn. Any other time I would be riddled with guilt, worried my husband would catch me, but nothing matters anymore. I am having an affair with a man I've never met. Charles is his name, I think. <laughs> he has a low reassuring voice that's like a lighthouse in a storm. I remember the first conversation we ever had. He did most of the talking. He doesn't keep things bottled in and I appreciate that quality in a man. He says, thank you and I'm sorry and I believe him. He has a tendency to say the same thing over and over but the consistency is reassuring. Our relationship began on March 20th. I'll never forget his first words to me. Thank you for calling the New York State Unemployment Insurance Claim Center. For English, press one. And I do. I press one. I know I need to learn another language. And now that I'm not working, I plan on carving out time for it. But for now, he lets me know it's okay. He instructs me to do things. Makes me feel safe. I press two when he tells me to, and then nine, and then two again. My fingers feel nimble on the buttons, and I wonder if he can tell that I lingered a little bit on that last one. After my most recent show closed on March 1st, I told myself I would take a short break before the busy year ahead. Work was lined up, and for the first time in my life, I was going to be able to make my living entirely from acting. Now, enter COVID-19, stage left, and every show, 
Every project, every prospect has been canceled. This little intermission is now a final curtain call. And I've never felt more desperate. Charles asks me for my social security number. This is the first moment that I take pause. I haven't met his parents or done a deep dive into past relationships over tiramisu, but my defenses are down and I'm utterly vulnerable. Against my better judgment, I tell him the nine digits that verify me as a human person. I wait. And now he wants a pin. A pin? We're getting pinned. Oh, have 1950s of you, Charles. Charles tells me to stay on the line so he can transfer me to someone who can help me complete my application. What? I just gave him my pin. Doesn't that mean anything? This feels so cold. After three seconds, I hear a sharp intake of breath and a familiar voice. (gasps) Charles is back. I'm sorry, but we're experiencing a high call volume at this time. Please call back later. Click. And he's gone. I was just an adjunct instructor at NYU. And today, I have... 22 cents in my checking account. I just finished off a five-week run of a one-woman show, and today I have 24 cents in my savings account. And I just performed that one-woman show at the largest solo theater festival in the world and won an award, and today I have 46 cents to my name. Okay, but I... I did just do that really fast, though. (laughs) Maybe I should become an accountant. I don't think my parents would complain. Oh, no, God. I would be a horrible accountant. Acting is what I've done my entire life. It's what I'm good at. (laughs) I try virtual auditions, and I, I tack up the only clean top sheet I have to the wall as a backdrop and I strategically place antique lamps around to create lighting that will hopefully make me look younger while I cry real tears into a camera and then I send out the hypothetical video for this hypothetical show that will hypothetically happen when this is hypothetically over I feel strange and defeated hypothetically The idea of being non-essential doesn't feel good. How do I become essential? How do I help? I call Charles back. I'm sorry, but we're experiencing a very high call volume at this time. Please call back later. Click. Is this something I said? I ring again. And this time, it's the blaring tone of a busy signal. And I had always just heard it as a tone, but now it's as if they're yelling, Charles, Charles, Charles. It goes on like this for a week. Occasionally, I speak to his friend, Beverly. Of course, her name is Beverly. And Beverly is always apologetic, but I don't buy it for a second. We're sorry, your call cannot be completed as dialed. Please hang up and try again. Yes, st- 
stuff it, Beverly. And as I listen to Beverly's meter dulcet voice, I wonder, she and Charles ever have a thing? I mean, they've worked together for years. And maybe last year they had one too many Brandy Alexanders at the company Christmas party and found themselves in the supply closet playing seven minutes in heaven. I mean, it was just a drunk fling, but I can tell that she's been thinking about it for years. And there, there's a noticeable tension between us. I try to keep it light and professional, but when I hear her say, you cannot, your call cannot be completed as dialed, I snap and scream into the receiver, fuck you, Beverly! The first week, I called Charles 400 times. Sometimes he's busy. Other times he tells Beverly to talk to me, the bitch. I take a break from calling Charles. You know, I don't want to seem too needy and I can take a hint. But it is April now and I've only made $300 in the last two months combined. So I call another number to check on an equally urgent matter. Thank you for calling the Mega Millions winning numbers line. It's him. My Charles, what is he doing here? I, I, I didn't even pay attention to the numbers he said, though I am more likely to win the lottery than get through to unemployment. I hang up quickly and I don't want to embarrass him by bringing up the past. April 4th was the most intense day of our relationship. So I wake up relaxed, light my meditation candle and pick up the phone and I'm calm, cool and collected for my first 400 calls. But then 500, 600, 700. And things start to shift. The tears came after 700. Where is he? <laughs> Doesn't he know how badly I need him? 800. 900. My hands hurt. 999. 1,000. I speak with a new guy that sounds like Casey Kasem. And then Beverly, that fucking bitch. And then the busy signal. And, and Charles is clearly trying to tell me that we need to take a break from each other. And I know I have to accept it, but how? I pick up a copy of Codependent No More by Melody Beattie. I didn't cause it. I can't cure it. I can't control it. And it all makes more sense to me now. I am going to break it off completely, but he has something that I need badly. In total, I called Charles 2,017 times over the course of 20 days. Oh. 2017 was the year I was married. Oh yeah, Adam. I have an actual husband. The super talented, unessential tattoo artist who I love. Yeah, we've been married for almost three years, but 
feels like four. I mean, it's fine. It's fine. We have a good time, but I long for something Charles has that Adam can't give me now. And I dialed for the 2018th time and I get through. Charles, my love, talks to me. He is telling me what I want to hear. And we almost make it to the end, to the climax of his speech, when my husband bursts through the door and says, Hey, how's it going? Uh, I slam down the computer and say, Ah, nothing. But what if that was the call? The time I got through, my heart drops. About 20 minutes later, the phone rang. It's Charles. He's calling me. Hello. I see from our records that you have been calling us trying to complete your claim. We are fixing the problem. There is no additional information we need. We will finish your application. Click. The end. The silence was deafening. That was Terry Wiegand. Next up, Ryan File from Oregon. Fun fact before you hear his story, Ryan is the big brother of Blake File, TMI Project's operation manager. You scream in the dark. I hear it through your monitor. We got this model because it has video too, but something malfunctioned and now everything looks washed white in a blurred night vision glow, like if an owl had cataracts. The word born on your screams is the same it always is when these midnight cries ring out. Daddy. Daddy. I pull myself from the just descended quiet of sleep and stumble through the dark and enter your room. I see you squirm in your tiny bed, see your mess of blankets writhing as you reposition, as you grunt and groan. Across the room, your older sister is still and silent. She's on top of the blankets, her mouth open slightly. I kneel next to your bed and reach and do what always seems to act as a slow-working tranquilizer. My right hand gently travels across your back, a simple up-and-down motion. The action, the room at large, is lit dimly by a small glass globe stuffed with a gratuitous amount of LED strings. The AA batteries that power the device are on their last legs, the brilliant glow dimming, almost dead. Eventually, you stop writhing. My action gradually lightens until it's nothing at all. I continue kneeling on your floor for a moment, Make a quick glance back to your sister, then back to you. My singular thought is one that's been ever-present these last few weeks. Tomorrow's coming, it whispers. And then it's gone. The two-word statement is exhausting. Because here's what it's meant so far. I'll wake up, make coffee, drink coffee. My wife will come out, armored. Scrubs, mint-colored slip-on sneakers, name badge. This is how nurses dress for battle. She leaves. I'll be alone, but only for a few minutes. 
I'll open my work laptop, the one that's been with me for about a month now. I'll start doing work things, check on overnight fires and car crashes, cruise public agency Facebook pages, catch up on scanner traffic, glance at TV news websites. Gotta start looking for something to write about. It didn't used to be this way. Dad and reporter used to be handled separately for the most part. Home things were home things and work things were work things. Sometimes work came home, yes, but it would usually fade. A small, spiked, ball-shaped particle you can't see without a microscope. Something that started Xeroxing itself and jumping into other humans and suddenly was everywhere around the world. Change that. In mid-March, Oregon's governor issued an order that basically said all residents need to stay at home as much as possible to mitigate its spread, ensuring hospitals and ICUs don't get overwhelmed. Go out for groceries and meds and doctor visits, but that's it. That included work. That included statewide school closures. Suddenly, home things were work things and work things were home things, and there was no beginning or end to either. Existence is a Mobius strip. Because during half of the working week, my wife, your mom, a nurse, was needed elsewhere. When you're a nurse and there's a pandemic, you go to war. When you're a journalist, you move your desk. The five-year-old, your sister, will wake up first. She'll pace briskly to me, frozen to nightgown flowing, tangled sandy vines of sleep mashed hair swinging freely. She'll sit in my lap, put her head to my chest, and stare out the window at the dew glinting on our backyard grass. Daddy, she'll say, I want something to eat. I'll get her something. I'll start to turn on the TV. Daddy, she'll say, play with me. This is where it will start. This is where a plateau of relative quiet and silence will begin to plummet. I'll say, I can't, honey, not right now. Okay, she'll say, submitting but no less disappointed. I'll go back to working. Maybe I'll start to write something. You'll wake up next. You'll ask for similar things. Cheese crackers, please. Turn on PJ masks, Dad. And, of course, play. I'll promise you both I will. Soon, I'll say, when I get X, Y, and Z all finished. It doesn't stick. I'll keep seeing things that need to get done. You'll both keep making messes I need to clean up. You'll keep asking to play, to snack, to go outside, to do everything. It is the antithesis of working. You kids are the best kids. Your sister is sensitive and empathetic and loves art and animals. You're curious and tough and so, so funny. But you're also kids. Kids at the peak of neediness who are 100% renewable energy. And there's a third kid, too. Not my kid. Deadline is more like my horrible niece. And sustaining her is the only way I get paid. Imagine trying to focus on calming a rabid bear when your beautiful, perfect puppies won't stop barking. Where do you put your energy first? 
What happens when you turn your back on the other choice? This has been the standard framework for a month now, two months, whatever it's been. Your mom and I spoke about it at length. She encouraged me, told me this is a moment where I can choose growth or resentment. On paper, she's right. But reality is 451 degrees Fahrenheit and burns best laid plans for fun. And COVID-19 is jet fuel. It's been 30, 60 days of this, and I hate it sometimes. Not the seeing my kids all the time part, not the writing part, not the staying at home part. The, the guilt that I can't seem to balance all three. In the dark room, your sister utters a small sleep sigh. It sounds content, it sounds safe. Even thoughts of tomorrow have gone to bed. I stumble back through the dark to my room, thinking of hibernation. How animals go to sleep and keep sleeping while months of hateful, frigid darkness pass them by outside. Spared except for dreams. How everything is new and bright when they wake. That was Ryan File. Next you'll hear Thomas Pekarski from New York City. In the days after 9-11, I'd wake up and all would be well. Holding the drawstring but not yet opening the drapes, time would stop. Then I'd remember. I'd be aware of both what I wanted to see and what I knew I'd never see again, and my preference never made a difference. One of the Sandy Hook mothers told me that even months after the mass shooting, she would forget. She would call Dylan to dinner, then there was silence, then she would remember. Now there is a big city view from the window of my tiny apartment. Rooftop decks on the five-story brownstones across the courtyard are abandoned, and there's a mulberry tree coming into full bloom. It's an odd silence, like how sound seems cushioned after a snowstorm and doesn't travel very far. I've never slept better. Sometimes I think the silence wakes me up. Is that even possible? Did I miss my St. Patrick's Day birthday? That morning I fumbled with pliers and scissors in my mouth over a hand mirror on the kitchen table as I took my dental stitches out, and the mailman never came. I lost half an eyebrow in a self-trimming and haircut adventure gone wrong. I googled the regrow time, and it looks like it'll be four to six weeks back to facial symmetry. I'm riveted by the stories and news reports, constantly pausing the video streams to savor the still photographs and study the statistical charts. My body feels ill when I listen to our empty soul of a president. I've ordained my governor as a great leader. Today they're saying we might be at the apex, and there's talk of temporarily burying the dead in city parks, as funerals are not allowed. It's chilling to walk out the door first thing in the morning to find the coroner's van parked right here on Morton Street. The first time I meet Harry, I've just returned home to find several enormous cement planters blocking the front of my building where I lock my bike to the wrought iron fencing. I walk over and ask Harry if he saw who put them there, but before he can answer, I insist it was certainly my landlord's doing for the sole purpose of making my life miserable. With a loud, gruff voice, he says, 
No, your landlord would not do something like that. Of course, I don't believe him. The next day, turning the corner at Morton Street and seeing my building from a distance, I realized a different building during construction on their facade had temporarily moved the planners in front of mine to get them out of the way. From then on, Harry always goes out of his way to say good morning. Each time he does, I choose to hear instead, all will be well. When they come to take Harry out from the basement apartment next door, a girl on her way to work steps out of the apartment above and crumbles on the stoop in tears. It's agonizing for her to watch the men struggle to bring the gurney with a black bag on it up the narrow winding stairwell. My body shakes when the girl's wailing becomes a screech. Sometimes I forget, and then I remember. Dear old Esther, my downstairs neighbor, together we're comrades in saving our Greenwich Village apartment building from gentrification. We connect every time the landlord pulls yet another dirty trick to try to get us out. Esther's a wise, sophisticated freelance writer, and anxious. She's often up all night and sleeps most of the day. It's typical to find her nearly in tears while fumbling with keys, conjuring excuses, and struggling to be polite. Simply walking up behind her causes her to shriek. My careless lack of attention to grammatical correctness often leaves her asphyxiated after reading my emails. Sometimes in retaliation for having tripped over her newspaper that laid scumming up the lobby floor till mid-afternoon, I'll be purposefully annoying in an email. Maybe sneak in a run-on sentence, or use parentheses incorrectly. I'm guaranteed a reply with my text reconfigured to a publishable version. I remember my jaw dropping the time she explained to me, your version of assumed facts about the landlord's motives are nothing more than speculation, and no more permissible as evidence in court than your good looks. Sometimes when we're in her grand apartment loading our weaponry for yet another counter-assault on the landlord, she gets sad and upset and says to me, Tom, make me laugh. I tell her, I overheard two women discussing your reputation in the coffee shop. One of them said, The Esther? Didn't she invent the hyphen? She laughed so hard she almost fell out of her chair and hit her head on the piano. Esther, in all her radiant glory, rose into the pandemic sky after bouts with first influenza and then coronavirus. Sometimes I forget and then I remember. I was madly in love with an overabundance of solitude long before the world around me was forced to conform to the same realm. I'll savor it deeply, as this may never come again. That was Thomas Pekarski. Our last storyteller is Issa Coffey from the Hudson Valley in New York. As a young girl on Ash Wednesday, early morning ashes of a dead Christ would be made into a silky cross on my forehead. I'd go to school like that, wondering about death, about what happened after. This year, Partway between Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, my 27-year-old son meets me at 1.30 in the morning at Hudson's emergency room. My left eye, so hot and purple, it fills the entire left side of my face. Low-grade fever 
keeping my heart steadily thrumming, lungs beginning to fill with what feels like tiny shards of glass. My son meets me in the dark ER parking lot where a flimsy white plastic tent for COVID patients has been hastily erected over by the back wall where orange cones and police tape marking the entranceway to the collapsing tent already have blown over to the side, not keeping anyone out or in. My son meets me, my left eye so swollen I can't really see him. He stands outside my car, far away, and still. The sudden and intense possibility of touch pulls me into a current, into a sea of longing. Afraid and desirous, I invite him to climb into my back seat. This man, who once was an egg inside my body, once was a child I nursed for three years, once was a kid I stayed up with night after night, face mask holding albuterol to his asthmatic lips, breathe, 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 our song for years of fearful nights when Brooklyn's streetlights were the only thing bringing warmth. My son, my firstborn, this man who lives fully in my lungs and heart, stands outside my car in the frigid night air, no hat, silently waiting, stands there lovingly waiting for my understanding. It comes slowly. Honestly, it doesn't. My lungs are so filled with loneliness and coronavirus, I feel like I'm drowning. They send me home at 2.30 a.m., my eyes and lungs not yet bad enough to have gained admittance. But the other thing about now, about right now, is that I've met a woman. Met her in an online photo, so lit up, lit up with grace, with the magic of evening. And I know that in her photo, it's an August evening. And I know that it's August because of the moonflowers, whose coronas are there behind this perfect stranger flowers wide open as they are only to the night sky and only in August. And I can tell it's evening because of the way the perfect light falls upon this stranger's silvered hair. How the perfect light falls upon the stone wall on which she sits. How the perfect light falls upon the garden spread out all around her. I reach out, we talk, and suddenly all my coronas too are luminous. And it turns out as part of the miracle of terrifying, unsteadying now, that she also is sick with COVID, even sicker than I, and in need of care. And so I'm here at her front door, and it's a week before Holy Thursday, and I'm not Catholic, and haven't been for decades. And it's like no other first date because I'm standing outside her thick glass door, a basket of plant medicine to leave, 
the coronas of the COVID virus so fully in my lungs and heart. I can feel the heat, the weight of them. And she's there on the other side, silvered hair flowing down around her like she's on fire. This woman, this stranger I want, deeply want to press my hands into, solid glass of her front door keeping her coronas, all of them, including the virus, inside her warm dwelling, and mine, all of them, including the virus, out. Coronas, those luminous emergence, rise up from the crown of my clitoris, the nipples of my breasts, rise up from this source of longing, like all of the planets and each of the stars, all warming slowly to fire. Growing up on Good Friday, the night that marked the death of hope, of love, and of communion, my family of six, dressed plain, would go to Mass in the evening. It would be quiet, the only time the church was completely dark, and a million priests in floor-length dresses, and my father in his suit, would walk slowly up the length of the central aisle, church boys looking like angels in front of them, swinging incense and singing in Latin. This Good Friday, my COVID-heavy body wakes, lungs shocked by a kind of pain that is inhuman. My body simply has no scale by which to measure this pain. I call my son, ask him to come take me to the hospital, tell him I can't make that journey, not by myself. My son stays on the phone. He stays on the phone, present, silent, loving, waiting for me to understand. Later, quiet, alone, and still at home, I lie buried in this disease that causes heartache. Every Easter of my long childhood, my mother would have made our Easter clothes, mine identical to my sister's, two gray wool skirts, matching the gray wool shorts our brothers would wear. It was a day we'd spend together, a day of miraculous rising, song, and celebration. This Easter, she, this new woman, mostly, entirely really, a stranger still, bodies yet unmet, each of us on our own sides of our shared river, each of us too sick to rise from our couch and our bed. This new woman texts, Turn on Andrea Bocelli. He's singing now in the Duomo. So I turn on Andrea Bocelli, world-famous opera singer, who regularly sings to thousands, to millions. And there he is, singing to no one. The great cathedral at Milan, which can hold 40,000 live standing souls, 
is completely empty. Completely empty. But for the pianist and this slender, blind singer. Yet there he is, unseeing, seeing and singing for all of us. Voice moving through airwaves and heartwaves, through coronas and the cosmos, connecting lives, connecting souls, connecting the empty with the full. Alone in my home, my son's distant, this woman within river passage behind her thick glass door, my friends far away with matzah and with Easter eggs, distance and closeness, the solitude required, the endless fear that's rising, 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 this one solitary, blind, extraordinary voice sings hope. This episode of TMI Projects Podcast was produced in partnership with Radio Kingston. Haley Downs produced and Nate Bruggen edited. Our Director of External Affairs is Sarah DeRose and our Operations Manager is Blake File. Our theme song is Secrets by Edison Woods. Special thanks to Ida Hakala, Kale Kepeshillen, Jimmy Buff, and Kashka Glowaska. Here's the part where we ask for your help. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe, rate, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. TMI Project is a nonprofit organization, and we rely on the generous support of our listeners. Help us continue to create radically true stories that have the power to change the world. Make a donation today. TMIproject.org.